safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. HIV. Sexual health. Research. Treatment. Condoms. Sexual attraction. Sexually transmitted Hello, my name's Tom and this is the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast where we talk about all things related to sexual health. This podcast is being released on World AIDS Day 2020. 2020 has seen some major changes in the way that the healthcare system operates due to the impacts of COVID-19. This has affected the way people living with HIV access care and compounded factors that have a negative impact on health outcomes, such as increased social isolation. First, I'm speaking with Brendan Crozier. Brendan is a senior clinical psychologist and has been managing the Allied Health Unit here at Sydney Sexual Health Centre. He has just accepted a new role leading Allied Health in drug and alcohol services across the South East Sydney Local Health District. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Hi there, Tom. Uh, to begin, what, what is Allied Health and how do Allied Health workers support people living with HIV? So Allied Health is a bit of an umbrella term. Uh, it's a bunch of different professions across New South Wales Health and outside as well. Um, and in most instances, these are university qualified professionals who work in healthcare um, and in the teams that we have here to support a person's medical care. So there's a whole lot of different ones. Uh, I think there's up to like 23 or 24. Um, they're things like art therapy, counseling, exercise physiology, nutrition and dietetics, radiation therapy, psychology, social work, the list goes on. Uh, in terms of Sydney Sexual Health Centre, we have um, here a psychology, myself, um, we have a social worker, we have a counsellor, we've got a couple of health promotion officers or health education officers, and yourself, of course. Um, in terms of allied health within sexual health across New South Wales, there's two kind of bodies that represent most of the, some of the allied health professionals. One of them's called SWIV, that stands for Social Workers in HIV, and they're social workers not just in New South Wales Health, but also in various NGOs. And the other one is called SCAN, which is the Sexual Health Counselors Association of New South Wales. So these are just sexual health counselors across New South Wales. Um, and most of them are social workers, but also there's some psychologists and counsellors as well. Um, so what we do really um, is attend to all kinds of needs that basically a doctor or a nurse wouldn't. Um, so it's things like people's psychosocial needs, welfare, their financial needs or housing, mental health, helping them link to services, that kind of thing. So 2020 has been a year of major changes to the way we run as a healthcare system. How has this impacted your work here at Sydney Sexual Health? So there's been a number of things. Uh, I guess the biggest thing that came up was we very quickly moved to using telehealth. Um, for us, that primarily means using the phone, but there was a bit of sort of video conferencing as well that we were doing. Um, after a while, we also transitioned to wearing masks when we were seeing people face to face. And it might sound like a simple thing, but for us, and particularly in the counselling part of Allied Health, wearing a mask can be tricky. Um, you know, we rely sometimes on seeing, being able to see people's facial expressions and, and vice versa to see whether you know, someone's smiling or frowning or whatever it might be. And, and actually masks can really get in the way of that. Um, the health education officers. So we have a Thai and Chinese work, um, background workers here, and they typically would have done outreach into um, sex work uh, premises, so parlours and that kind of thing. 
and their outreach obviously had to be cancelled. Um, also, the the sex work industry had a huge impact and a lot of the parlours closed. They're reopening now, um, but things were very, very different. In terms of the work we did here, though, at Sydney Sexual Health, we didn't stop. You know, We continued right through. We were essential workers, so we were coming to work every day. Uh, and in actual fact, particularly for the counsellors here, things were busier than ever. Even though the medical work we were doing here, the nurses and the doctors saw about a 40% decrease in their activity, we actually saw an increase. Uh, and I think that's just because of some of the impacts that COVID was having on people. Yeah. And uh, what were some of those impacts? So, so uh, what sort of things did you see with people uh, living with HIV? So... In terms of people living with HIV in particular, to be to be honest, it wasn't massively different from what was happening for a lot of other people. Um, we see a, a kind of mix of people here. We see a proportion of people. I think in the counselling unit, <clears throat> about 20% of the people we see are living with HIV and, and the rest are not. Um, you know, in terms of the impact that, that COVID had on people, it really depends on a lot of other factors. Um, you know, for most people living with HIV, the vast majority doesn't necessarily have a huge impact on their lives these days. They need to take a pill once a day. Um, but most people, you know, they have good connections, stable jobs, stable housing, that kind of thing. Um, but there were some other kind of factors that in, impacted on people. And one of them that was really important for us that we saw during the COVID kind of peak period was for people who didn't have Medicare, um, so we call them non-Medicare eligible, um, and that could be a range of people. It could be people who are on student visas or um, other kinds of visas that, that aren't permanent residents and therefore don't have that access. And because they don't have access for, to Medicare, it also means they don't have access to, say, Centrelink. And what that meant was when these people lost their jobs, often they're in hospitality or other kind of um, those kinds of jobs, there was no job keeper. There was no job seeker. They were literally just, they had no money. And many, many of our clients come from sort of poorer families overseas and they weren't able to return home. Um, some of them were carrying large debt in their home country that they, they had to take on to get here to Australia in the first place and to be able to pay for uni and college. And a lot of them, their families were relying on them to provide some income back to their home country. And then on top of that, a lot of them, their family didn't even know that they were living with HIV. And so they had this kind of constellation of things that hit them all at once. And it was really tricky for some of them. Some of them were even struggling to, you know, get food. Um, their housing was unstable. You know, I had a quite a few clients actually who went and did some Ubering. Um, and that was, you know, obviously quite difficult for them. Uh, but what happened, our response to that was Swiv and Scan came together and we shared some resources on what was available. And in actual fact, there was a lot of communities that really stepped up to provide support. And I guess a lot of people wouldn't know. Um, and one of them I remember was the Sikh community. Um, they provided uh, lots of different um, avenues for people to get food and to get support. Um, they weren't the only ones, but there was there was a lot going on. Um, yeah, and I think as well, one of the other things that happened, and it was true not just for... Um, people living with HIV, but I guess more broadly was there was sources of connection for people dropped off a bit. Um, so, you know, there's various groups that are run around the place by NGOs like 2010 and ACON and 
Unfortunately, a lot of these had to be cancelled. They scrambled to kind of find other means to support people. But uh, for some people living with with HIV who are already quite isolated, those support services um, dropped off for a while. And I think that meant that their isolation increased. And uh, as a clinical psych, uh, can you tell me what are the impacts of of social isolation and why is connecting community so important? Well, you know, I think one thing I've come to realise, I've been a clinical, senior clinical psychologist for a few years now, is that loneliness and social isolations is some of the most pernicious issues that humans can face. You know, we have evolved over millions of years to be social animals. If we think back to our you know, forebears running around on the savannah, we're not very strong. We don't have great teeth or claws or we're not particularly fast <clears throat> in terms of being able to run away. But what we do do well is we, we survive in groups. And so from an evolutionary perspective, being part of the group is essential. If we weren't part of the group, we're pretty much dead. So it makes sense that deep in our brains we have this drive to connect with others and if that isn't fulfilled then our brain can sometimes interpret that as a kind of death you know one of the longest running studies um, that's ever been done actually it's the harvard study of adult development it was started in 1938 and it followed admittedly mostly white cis men over the last 82 years Um, so it's not necessarily super representative Um, but it is one of the longest longitudinal studies and that means it's a study that's kind of taken place over these 82 years to sort of see what kinds of things um, impact on people's health. So there was a guy called Robert Waldinger, he's the current director of the study, he summarised the main result and it was that those who kept warm relationships got to live longer and happier and the loners often died earlier. And it turns out that social connections were one of the most important factors in people's happiness and health. And it actually turned out that it was even more important than things like smoking or drinking alcohol, um, all these things that we classically associate with poor health outcomes. Social connection was the number one. So for people living with HIV, there are many ways in which connection has been stripped away. You know, for those who lived through the early years, there was death around them. People were dying there. Um, their friends, whole social networks were wiped out. We also have that kind of stigma and discrimination that happened with families rejecting people. Often there was that intersection of sexuality and and, um, HIV as well. Uh, But you know what? I think things have improved a bit for those who are being diagnosed today. Um, And again, probably more the kind of white cis men. For those who have more of an intersection with other things like coming from Um, overseas where sexuality and gender issues uh, are much more heavily stigmatized, um, those things can really kind of still come into play. Uh, The last thing I guess I'd say is that true connections really deeply rely on authenticity. You know, we can't connect with others unless we're able to be ourselves, ourselves without fear or without shame. And it's when we have that deep vulnerability that we we are able to connect but in a, in a society that's still very um, homo-negative um, and in a society that still struggles with issues around gender and around HIV, you know, it's really difficult to, to be that vulnerable. And so I think that does kind of impact on people's connection. And as I said, that can then further impact on all kinds of other aspects of their life. 
And uh, what can people living with HIV do to maintain social connectedness during this time? You know, I think we're really lucky. Um, Obviously, we're recording this um, a little bit before World AIDS Day. And so, you know, we know that anything can happen. But it seems as though, at least in New South Wales at the moment, we're returning to a sort of version of normal, Um, you know, and we really hope that that continues. I think what's happened for a lot of people, though, what I'm hearing is that during COVID, people withdrew from their social connections a lot. And that was what we were, um, well, we were encouraged to physically distance, at least not necessarily social distance. Uh, but it, it does require people putting that effort in to get back out there. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to go, say, to a, um, a club or something like that because those are still not open. But we can do other things, things like, you know, having dinner with a friend or, or catching up for a hike or something like that. If people are struggling to reach out, there are lots of services around. One good example is Enkali, um, and I think one of your other um, interviewees is going to be from Enkali, and I guess I'll leave it up to them to describe what that is. But I, I think the biggest thing is it requires effort. Friendships require work. They don't just happen. They're hard to make, and they're also hard to maintain. Um, so, you know what? Send a message, make a call, reach out. Uh, it's, it's, on, it's, on, it's okay to do it online, but you know, there's something very visceral about being in the same space as a physical human and being able to kind of um, see them, even if you can't give them a hug or um, shake their hand. Uh, so you'll soon be moving on to your new role. Uh, what will you miss most about working at Sydney Sexual Health and the people we see here? You know, one of the things I've worked in um, HIV and sexual health now for about 15 years, I think, so back in the mid-noughties. And one of the things that was really important to me was to be able to work with our community. It's been really amazing to work with the LGBT community over the last 15 years, and I think that's probably the thing I'll miss the most. Not that my new job won't um, have some aspects of that, but it's a kind of broader role working across drug and alcohol um, in, in the local health district, and so it won't specifically be working with you know, my community. And so I think that that's something I'll miss a lot. Um, and one of the things that I guess that I really enjoy about that is is a shared understanding of culture. I think that's something that a lot of people don't really understand in healthcare is that the LGBT community does have a culture and that is a different culture than people who might identify as heterosexual or, um, or binary or what have you. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that that understanding of having a lived experience is important to the connection that I for- form with my clients. Um, and, you know, the feedback is the same for them, that it's important that they have someone from their community that they can talk to and have that feeling of safety and understanding around the culture that exists within the LGBT community. So... Um, That's something I think I'll miss a lot. Well, um, thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Brendan, and uh, all the best in your new role. Thanks, Tom, and uh, yeah, good luck with the podcast. Next up, I'll be speaking to Rodney and Susie from the Ankali Project. I recorded this section with them late last year to discuss how volunteers support people living with HIV to overcome social isolation. We are joined by Rodney and Susie, who are a client and volunteer of the Ankali Project. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Can you tell me about the Ankali Project and how long you, you have both been involved with it? 
Well, I've been with Ancali since uh, I came to from Brisbane, as from the Gold Coast to here, um, and I hooked up with him in April '98, and uh, I've been with him for 21 years. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I've been with them only one and a half years, and it's been a good one and a half years. I've really enjoyed it. Yes. Great. And Susie, uh, what made you want to be a uh, volunteer with the Ancali Project? Well, I used to run um, a loss and grief counselling program, and I had volunteers that I trained for that. And one of my volunteers was with Ancali, and she told me about it. She's been here 10 years. And when my work started to become less and my grandchildren needed me less, then um, I looked for something that would fulfil me, that I had a bit of an idea about. And so I decided to do the training and see where it led to. Yeah. And is this your first time working with a HIV organisation as well, or, or have you like it been involved is. previous in your career? No, and um, it, it's my first time with HIV, but I've been working with loss and grief, which is in a way what HIV is. It's loss of part of your health um, for many years. And uh, what are some of the positive impacts you've seen uh, through the work that you do? With Ron, Rodney? No. Oh, with Sorry. Ankali in general. Oh, with Ankali, what are the positive impacts? Well, I think um, because it's about helping people with social isolation, it's wonderful for them to have a friend who they know they're going to meet regularly, who is going to be non-judgmental, who's going to support them, and who in turn themselves is supported by the organisation. So I think that's been amazing. And your work involves supporting people through uh, potential discrimination and at times traumatic experiences. How do you and the other volunteers support one another and remain resilient? Well, we have a regular, at the moment, weekly get-together of volunteers. And I find that that's very supportive because at times when I'm insecure about something that's going on or that I might be imagining, you know, that Rodney doesn't want to see me again or something like that, then they're very encouraging and supportive. And in addition to that, uh, I've had some of my own issues, like my best friend died this year, and they've been very supportive even in my personal issues. So that's been amazing, really. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And how about the uh, positive impact that the Ancali projects had on your life? It's helped me stand back up on my feet and realise that there is life out there. And without the Ancali, I don't know where I'd be, but Ancali's been there for, since 21 years, has been there for me with the support and everything. And have you seen much change in the project over that time? Over the time, yes. I was here for people who used to work before John and the changes from Ancali have really changed a lot. They've got more volunteers, their training is better, uh, the understanding and yeah. What sort of activities do you do together? <laughs> together? We've done a, a walk, that walk from Maroubra 
to Malabar and back because he likes walking, or mm. that's what you said. Um, we've been to the photography exhibition because mm-hmm. he's a very keen photographer. Yeah. And what are some of the challenges you have faced uh, as a person living with HIV? Ben Carney, as I said, I come from the Gold Coast back in 98, April. And they were the first mob that I headed for because I knew about Ankali back in the 80, late 80s. And they've been very helpful for me with support and that. Before I had Sue, I had another woman called uh, Lucy. And uh, we were together for a long time. And, um, but the support I've been getting with Ankali has been very helpful, especially in the last two years since my partner passed away from a stroke. One of the other things that we've done, if you don't mind me saying, Mm. is um, talk a lot about your partner who died. Grief, yes. And um, about how to manage the feelings and what sort of memorial you want. And, you know, just sort of having someone to discuss that with rather than having to just think about it by yourself. Well, that's one good thing about Sue. She is a grieving counsellor, which if I need to, I can sit and ask questions and try and work through it. But... um, Otherwise, I've used other grievance counsellors, but it's one of the things you've got to work through. My partner died of a stroke in Townsville, and uh, he took him four months to die, and to sit every day there and watch him die, when originally I thought I would die before him, but he, <clears throat> he died before me, and which a little bit hard when you think when you first diagnosed with AIDS well you don't know how long you had in those days it was like oops I'm sorry but you might as well go out and let your hair down and just live and get up and when you die you die and you weren't really suspected to live more than five years but now I live with it for 21 and then to have your partner pass away of a stroke um, is is a bit hard because you're, I'm expecting to go before him but he went before me and that's why I've been coming back to Ancali and asking for help through them by just sitting and talking and when John's not here Sue has been but otherwise it's a bit hard when you don't have family or relatives to turn to yeah Sounds like Ancali provides a great service. Yeah, it does. It, it does more than what it, you expect it to do. For me, anyhow. That was Rodney and Susie from the Ancali Project talking with me about how volunteers help to overcome social isolation with people living with HIV. This has been the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast for World AIDS Day 2020. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn to stay up to date with all the latest information on sexual health. If you like the podcast, don't forget to share and subscribe.